Yes. Let's warm up here. I'm in the hot seat. Uh, yes, uh, this morning we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 2, and um, we'll, be, uh, we'll be working through the text verse by verse, um, so I, I won't read it ahead of time, but I will open us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I do um, thank you for your word. I, I thank you that um, it demonstrates... Um, both your sovereignty over us and the universe, and also shows that you care about us, that you love us, and that you've communicated to us, and that you have a plan of redemption that you've fulfilled through Jesus Christ, and that even with our um, present suffering and present present, uh, wondering of what is actually under the feet of our King, we know that um, all things um, surely will be suppressed under the feet of King Jesus, and, um, and he will bring all things to fruition, and we look forward to that day, and so we pray, come Lord Jesus, we ask that you would bless um, our study, um, keep my words true, and focused on you and your word, and be with our other Sunday school teachers as well, in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, Psalm 2 is... Um, Psalm 2 is a, a royal psalm, a coronation psalm. It's also considered a, a messianic psalm. Um, it is the first messianic psalm of the Psalter, and this psalm prophesies the triumph of Messiah and, and the messianic kingdom. Um, the psalm is also the most quoted and alluded to psalm of, of all of the psalms in the New Testament, and um, and. So we'll address some of the New Testament use of this psalm as well throughout the lesson. I want us to consider the multifaceted aspects of Psalm 2 this morning. And um, I want to balance um, what, you know, so we're in a Bible study, so I'm going to impart things to you that you can't necessarily find just reading through the English text. Um, but I also want to help, help you grasp some things that you, you can apply into your, your personal studies of the Psalms. And, and some of the things that, that come to mind are the things that we glean from the text as Hebrew poetry. And, and one of the, the main components of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. And what I find interesting about that is in my personal studies, I used to kind of think that maybe the Psalms were redundant when they, when they keep saying the same thing over and over again. But I learned you know, over the years that uh, there's a poetic aspect, but also um, uh, an instructive aspect to the parallelism that comes from poetry. And I want to address that today so that when you're reading, you're not just, you know, reading through a psalm one day thinking, wow, this is redundant, but, but that, oh, I see here an increase in specificity or um, an increase, um, uh, 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 maybe a in one way, perhaps a redundancy, but, but a focus on things. And so I, I hope to uh, give some application to that. Um, the parallelism does sometimes increase what was already stated or specify more specifically what was stated in the, in the, in the first section. And sometimes it's just synonymous. Um, 
There's also chiasm that, that is demonstrated in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry. Um, I'll show you some of that today, but um, often that's lost in the, in, the, in, in the English, but it's okay if you don't see that in your English reading. Um, sometimes, though, you might catch um, the greater chiastic structure of, of a psalm in general, like uh, this morning psalm, you, if you just were to read through it, you would see the nations as the focus in the beginning. Then it moves to Yahweh, Yahweh's anointed, and then back to the nations again. Except the nations in the beginning are raging and tumultuous, and then at the end, it's, a, it's an instruction of, hear the wisdom of the Lord, or you'll be crushed underfoot kind of mentality. Um, as we consider... Um, this this psalm, and, and you can open there in, in either your digital forms or the, the Pew Bible. We'll be looking at Psalm 2 all morning, so you don't really have to flip from it. As I address some other things, most of the time the text will be on the screen from the New Testament, or, um, or you could write it down and, and look it up later. There's going to be some text that I might mention the reference but won't really get to, or I'll have to take just a snippet of, you know, a sentence or half a sentence out of it or something. And so you, you might want to write it down, but we won't be flipping much away from Psalm 2. Um, and perhaps the first thing that you'll notice about this psalm is the lack of a header or an introduction. And a lot of the psalms talk about um, maybe the, the manner it's sung or the instruments used or that it's a song of ascent or who wrote it, um, Ethan the Ezraite or a psalm of David, or things along those lines. And we don't have that here. Um, and the author doesn't identify himself as David, and it doesn't provide any other background or information. But we know that it's a Davidic psalm. Anyone know why? Because the New Testament tells us that it is. And so uh, we'll, we'll look at that. Acts 4.25 tells us that, that it's, a, it's a psalm of David. Um, We'll look, at, we'll look at it later. Um, another literal, literary device that poets, uh, the, the Hebrew poets tend to use is inclusio. And, um, and basically what that is is a device based on a, a concentric principle, um, or uh, it's also known as, as bracketing. And it consists of um, creating a frame by placing similar, similar material at the beginning of a passage and at the end of a passage. Um, and we have such an inclusio here with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, as a matter of fact. Um, Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. Then Psalm 2.12 ends with the blessed, uh, again, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And it combines these two psalms in an inclusio, which sets Psalm 1 and 2 together, together as a unit. I... I don't think, and I, I didn't read any commentators that, that believe that they were actually written together, but it does, at least in, in the context of the Psalms, it, it places them together. Um, Psalm 1 is the way of the righteous person, contrasted with the way of the wicked person. And then in Psalm 2, it's a full-length portrait of the ultimate righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, another thing we see in Psalm 2 itself um, and I, I guess you wouldn't catch this from a simple reading, but there are also Aramaic loan words that are used in the beginning and the end of the text. And it, it kind of points us that it's not only a reminder to the Hebrew nation, but it's a warning to the foreign nations as well. And that's 
obvious in here uh, in, in the text. You, you, you can get that from it. Um, because Psalm 2 is a royal or a coronation and a messianic psalm, it has a significant relationship and a reliance even on the Davidic covenant. And so I'll want to take a look at that this morning, and I want to look at that ahead of time. And uh, for what it's worth, I haven't been paying very much attention to my slides, but this kind of points to what a chiastic structure is. Um, in, in verses, um, the chiastic structure looks generally like verb, noun, noun, verb. And the reason why that's significant, if you were reading it from the Hebrew, is that um, most sentences start with, with a verb and then proceed to the noun. So then in the second half, for it to start with a noun and then proceed to the verb, it, it's kind of pointing to something. And so we'll see that. And then I already mentioned that the passage as a whole has a, a bit of a chiastic structure as well. But again, I want us to look at um, the Davidic covenant. And that's found in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. And I'll read that for you. It is on the screen, but I'll read it even though it's kind of long. Because you'll hear elements of it coming up over and over again throughout um, Psalm 2 and how the New Testament uses the psalm. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, and that's Yahweh speaking to Nathan the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we move to our text and we're at verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The first word we see right, right out the gate is the, the word why. It's literally meaning to what end or for what purpose. And basically the psalmist is saying, for what purpose are you raging? Because in the end, it's just, it's a vain thing. And this is an expression more of astonishment at their futility than any kind of fear or anxiety or surprise about what's going on. Um, certainly we're not surprised that the nations rage, but we look uh, alongside the, the psalmist and say, why are they doing this? It's all, it's all for vain. But it, it doesn't um, prohibit them at all. Um, the term nations in the beginning is just a generic term. Um, it's pitted against people in the second uh, line, but we'll look at that in a moment. This is the word that nations there is, is the same word that's used frequently in Scripture that uh, the, the Latin term Gentiles has come to be used frequently, so so uh, Gentile nations or gen nations in general. But what are they doing? They're raging. They're in a restless t tumult. 
Um, this is the, the first of the two Aramaic loan words uh, that I was referring to. And it describes the snorting and the neighing and the, the stomping of a horse that's demonstrating agitation. So they are stirred up. They are bothered. They're in a tumult. Um, and then, and then uh, we, we see the parallelism of not just nations, but, but people. This is a poetic word for a people group. It does have a lot of synonymous use along with the term nations that's used. And, and another Hebrew word for people. Um, it is very synonymous there. Um, the use of this word usually only happens, uh, it's usually only used in, in poetry in parallel with words like nations that we've, we've seen. Um, it's common in Psalms and Isaiah. Um, and, and it's very, it's, it's legitimate that it's translated this way as, as nations and people. Um, but in both the Hebrew and the Ugaritic, the word may carry a connotation of a warrior, a warring people. Um, and so that's also significant because in this military context, um, it's, it's easy to see not just the nations raging, but a warring people who are plotting a vain thing. Um, again, in, in vanity, it's, it's vain or empty, it's void. Um, Jeremiah 51, 58 uses that kind of terminology. The, people, the people's labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. Habakkuk 2.13 uses the same kind of uh, phraseology, and it's very similar to what we see here. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? And so uh, the psalmist is, is saying they're, they're all stirred up. Why, why all the commotion? Because it's not going to come to fruition. Um, We're, this, is, this is used in a lot of, uh, of ancient texts, um, this, this translation, um, as we consider it. Um, we're, we're taught that when you're trying to figure out the, the right meaning and, and words of phrases to consider the four witnesses, and for the Old Testament, the four witnesses are the Masoretic text, text which is the Hebrew that, that our Old Testament comes from. We also consider the Septuagint, which is the Greek, an, an earlier Greek translation of the Old Testament. And primarily when the New Testament authors are quoting from the Old Testament, it's almost word for word what we see from the Septuagint. But then we're also encouraged when, when there might be um, other potential interpretations or uses to consider the Aramaic Targums, which are trans, early translations of, of what would have been Hebrew scripture translated into Aramaic and also the Peshitta, which is Syriac. Uh, translation as well. And so when we consider these, this translation of why do the people's plot in vain is, is very reasonable. Um, but there's also implication from other Hebrew scripture and, and um, the Ugaritic language that implies that, that this could be um, an implication of the nations numbering their troops. Um, and this is the same kind of terminology that's used in Genesis 14, 14, when Abraham is, is calling his servants together, he's summoning them together to, to go free Lot, to, to go rescue Lot and those who were taken captive. And um, I, I don't want to make too much of it, but I've, I've found in studying Hebrew poetry that 
there are a lot of passages and phrases and words where there, there is a lot of um, mixed implication where you could, you could translate the word this way, the, this passage this way, and, it, and it's right and proper and it makes sense. And a lot of the other, you know, all four witnesses uh, attest to that. But then there seems to be a poetic free expression where they're, they're picking words that can also have dual purpose and dual meaning. And I say this carefully because there's times when we read in the New Testament where we say, what is Paul saying to Timothy? Or what is Paul saying here? It's either this or this. It's only one. And we don't know which one because, you know, there's only one interpretation. But I, th- I think that it's, it seems over and over again, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued with how uh, words are used where both meanings fit the context, both meanings fit the grammar. And I think it fits in this case for us to consider both the people's plotting in vain and then also these warring people numbering their troops because they're setting themselves up against Yahweh and against his anointed. And that's what carries on into the, the next passage, the next verse. Uh, but before we proceed into verse 3, I want us to look at the parallelism. We talked about it, the nations and the people or the warring people and then their rage. They're, they're raging and they're conspiring. Um, I do want to, to make note of one other thing that's interesting about this, this, um, this text. Uh, the word plot and the people's plot in vain, it has to do with um, planning, plotting and planning. It's the same word that's used for meditate in, in, in uh, chapter 1. It's the same uh, Psalm 1, 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. So in Psalm 1, the, verse, uh, the word used for meditate is used in a good way, thinking about the Word of God in a, in a positive way, thinking about it um, day and night. Um, here it's used in the bad way of the, the plotting and planning of, of these, these kings. And, um, and it, it's the idea of looking at this thing from different angles and from different perspectives. You look at it from different times of day. And, and this was familiar to me as a military planner because... We would get in groups and we'd counsel together and we'd, we'd say, uh, from, we have the field artillery guys, the infantry guys, the personnel guys, uh, you know, everyone's the sustainers that, that have to move equipment. We're, we're all together. We're talking, what's this going to look like? We talk about if, if they're going to attack, when are they going to attack? What's the worst time of day? What's the worst thing that could happen if they attack at this time? And so they're looking at, and that's what these kings and, and nations are doing um, while they're, um, plotting and planning against against Yahweh. And that was the, uh, the the chiasm that we saw there, and uh, and now we're we're into verse two. I said verse three a moment ago, but I meant verse two. Um, what I want what I want to say in transition is that the kings of the ancient Near East. Um, Consider themselves to be appointed by the will of their deity, um, and, and they they believe themselves to be um, working on behalf of their god. And they had multiple gods, and they were often very territorial. But throughout the Hebrew Scripture, um, Yahweh is not only considered the the god of Israel, both the people, but and certainly not just over the land of Canaan because certainly he rescued his people from Egypt 
and from the land of captivity in Babylon and Assyria. Um, but he is God of heaven and earth, and the true rider on the clouds, Psalm speaks to that, um, and, and these kings are conspiring together um, on behalf of their deities to throw, overthrow Yahweh and, and his anointed, if at all possible. And so then in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the implications of them setting themselves up is that they're ready to take a stand. They're, they're readying themselves for a pitched battle. They're like, we're about to meet head to head. Our troops are numbered, and we're, we're ready to attack. Um, and, and again, that's consistent with the numbering of the troop con- number, numbering of the troops, that concept that, that fits with the people's plotting a vain thing. They're, t- they're taking counsel together. They're, they're sitting together, and they're plotting and planning, how are we going to overthrow Yahweh and his anointed? Um, and and he, the anointed is the object of their deliberation. Um, this is a, um, a, a parallelism as well, where it's a parallelism of specificity, not just against Yahweh, but specifically against Yahweh's anointed. Um, we also actually see the parallelism between the kings and the rulers um, as well. Uh, the uh, New Testament refers to um, this passage in, in, a, in a few places. Um, why, do the nations, uh, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot of vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And the people uh, in, in the community of Peter and John said, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to be done. And so there, um, the, Luke's capturing the, the, the words of this group, um, confirming to us that... Um, they weren't just plotting against Yahweh's anointed and the king of David and the Davidic line, those who would follow after him, but even Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. Um, Acts 4, uh, 25-28 sees Calvary predicted here with the roles of the kings and rulers fulfilled by Herod and Pilate and also the nations and the peoples, um, including the people of, of Israel. His, some of his own people turned against him. Um, united against the Lord and against His anointed. Um, and Acts 4.28 um, points out the quiet sovereignty of, of, of God in this, that they're doing all this, but it was all along the lines of your intended purpose. So again, they're plotting in vain, because number one, they're not going to overthrow the Lord and His anointed, but that Christ Himself should be crucified was all part of God's redemption plan. Um, also, if we were to consider um, 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8, through 8, we see um, uh, the, the obtuseness of, of, of man. Um, the text there says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, psalm 2 is considered a, a royal psalm. We mentioned that in the introduction. And it relates in a historical way to the throne of David, although no specific uh, historic event or incident is, is attributed to it, 
Um, it's possible that David wrote it um, right before or right after his own coronation. These may have, uh, verses uh, 7 through 9 may have been some of the words that, that he said um, after his coronation. Um, but when it speaks about Yahweh and his anointed, it does speak to all of the kings who would follow after David. And because this is a, a coronation psalm, it's believed to have been repeated at every subsequent coronation after David's, so probably under Solomon and, and, and the others. Um, and since the psalm has the prophetic dimension, it certainly includes um, Jesus Christ himself. And we know this to be true because Acts 13 points us to that. Uh, Paul says, He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so we can see the, the New Testament drawing the, the Messianic implications from this text as well. And so we continue into to verse 3. And the text says, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And this is the mindset of the kings and the rulers who are plotting against um, Yahweh and his anointed. Um, I have pictured the yoke because um, to, to, to picture the, the, the cords as a reference to the manner in which the yoke was attached to the animal. And there's a lot going on. There's ropes there and there's chains there. Um, in, in other pictures that you've seen of yokes, there's usually a U-shaped harness that goes up into the, the wooden yoke over top. It's possible that they actually used rope back in the day. It's probably easier to weave rope up there to attach the harness um, of the yoke to the oxen. And then there's also ropes or chains that are brought back to the, to the farmer who's using the, the yoke. But it, it, it denotes the restraints of government. And, and this is what the king's of the nations are desiring to, to break free from Yahweh and, and his anointed. They don't want the authority of, of the God of heaven and earth over, over them. And Hosea 11.4 says, um, speaks to that, that, that of this being a, a typically blind reaction to God's easy yoke uh, and cords of compassion. Hebrews 11.4 reminds us what the cords and yoke of of Yahweh are like. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Or we think of Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty. Come to me, all who are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's what the nations want to cast off, but the righteous declare as Psalm verse Psalm 1 verse 2 says that that for the righteous they delight in the law of Yahweh in the law of the Lord is his delight and Psalm 2:12 ends with that blessed are those who take refuge in him so the nations are warring but the righteous are saying I like the yoke of comfort that Yahweh puts up places on my life and, and we submit Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. 
When it speaks of he who sits, it's, he, it's the enthroned one sitting in the place of authority, which is in heaven. Um, the, the word Lord here is Adonai. Um, a, a, the, the simple translation or simple use of, of Adonai, the Lord, in, when it's referring to um, earthly people, is Lord or Master, um, a person in authority. Uh, also when it's used of humans, of, of, of interpersonal contact, it's also used as a term of respect or politeness. But the third and very frequent use of the word Adonai is, is used in a divine sense, the one who is the supernatural master of all, and it's a title of the true God. And certainly in context, it's, it's critical, and it's clearly used here in the divine sense as the sovereign over the universe enthroned in heaven. And if there be any doubt, consider Deuteronomy ten seventeen. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. So he's not just a Lord and master. He is the Lord and master of heaven and earth of all things. Um, I was in a conversation um, a few months ago, I think last fall, with um, someone who was asking me about Reformed theology and things along those lines. And, and throughout the conversation, I kept using the word sovereign. And he also tried to throw me under the bus by saying, you probably don't even read the King James Version. And then, he, and, then, and then he says, why do you keep using the word sovereign? It's not even in the, in the Bible. And what he meant by that is the King James Version doesn't even use the word sovereign. And you're trying to, to rest all your, your Reformed theology on this word that's not even in the Bible. Well, perhaps that English word isn't in the King James. But consider other verses like 1 Timothy 6.15. It's referring to, to the Lord who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Or even in Acts 4.24 that we, we looked at earlier, they declared, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And the word Lord there is, is not kurios, which is the normal word for Lord in the, in the New Testament, but it's the word despota, despota, um, as in a sovereign, the sovereign Lord, the one who is, has complete power and authority over another. And here we see that the sovereign Lord of the universe looks at them and laughs. He derides them. Um, it's, it's anthropopathic language um, of, of God laughing at the futile efforts of man. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Or Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. I suppose I meant to show you those as you were following along. I want to also look at Revelations 11. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. Does that sound familiar to Psalm 2? And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So, uh, Yahweh Adonai is not too worried about the nations mumbling, complaining, and plotting against him. This is his response. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. The ESV says, and terrify them in his fury. Um, 
the form of, of, of address here for speak is actually an impassioned speak. So he's speaking passionately to them in his, in his anger and in his wrath. Um, he's, he's speaking passionately. And we see also a parallelism between his speaking passionately with his terrifying them. We also see um, a, a parallelism between his anger. And he's not just angry, but he's burning angry. He has burning wrath against them. And uh, it's also structured here chiastically with a speak passionately, anger, anger revisited, but intensified, and then terrified. And then... Uh, Yahweh declares, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And here we actually have an emphatic use of I. He says, I, I have set, or, but as for me, I have set my king, my anointed, on the holy hill of Zion. Adonai, sovereign of the universe, is declaring, he himself has placed his king. There is no need for further dispute or stirring among the people because I've made my decision. And this term, um, set or installed, is, is certainly very appropriate here. Uh, this is another very interesting use of the word because there's, there's multiple, there's at least three potential implications that, that can be drawn from this. Um, some scholars read it as anoint. Um, it seems to be a more contentious view of being used as anoint, but it does tie in some and we'll see. But the meaning of this word also can be interpreted as to pour or to pour out. And it's poured out as a drink offering. But also it's used to pour out molten metal to cast an image. And I, and I, I see a lot of poetic imagery in that use. Consider his selection of David as a man after Yahweh's own heart. And it's the type pointing to the perfect Messiah, Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Another um, possible um, poetic rendering of this is to consider the messianic implications of the text. If reading this word as poured out as a drink offering, um, it, it could be... Um, could be read as, I have poured out my king as a drink offering upon my holy hill of Mount Zion. And again, I don't want to make too much of this rendering um, because I think that it does stand alone by itself as, as the text reads. But, but it, it does bring a lot of uh, poetic connotations if we consider how even the New Testament ties um, Yahweh's resurrection, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ's resurrection um, as, as part of this messianic fulfillment and yet also, Jesus, before his resurrection, was poured out as an offering upon the hill of Mount Zion. And so it's very poetic, but I, I think we're fine with reading the text the way it reads. And, um, and he, it says, you are my, uh, let's see here, Acts 13.32 is, is the, the New Testament passage that, that we were, um, that I was alluding to. Yet I have... Uh, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Um, in Acts 13, he, he writes, um, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. And Acts 13 is a, is a great 
point of exegesis, explaining how we're interpret the day of begetting, the day of... Um, I think you skipped a page in your notes. You passed two pages. I'm probably... Um, Uh, I'm going to use this as an introduction to the to verse seven. I will use this as an introduction to verse seven. Um, let's just look at verse seven. I'm kind of running out of time anyhow, so it's good to, to push forward. I will decree. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you." And and Acts thirteen um, points to this by. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the day of begetting. Now, in um, in the New Testament, we see the sonship of Jesus declared uh, several times. Right? We see it in the baptism. It's uh, it's in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We also see it um, declared at his transfiguration. But it's proclaimed emphatically at the resurrection that Jesus was all that he claimed to be, the Son of God, God Himself. And for us to consider further that this points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a declaration of his sonship and, and not in any ways to be interpreted as the second person of the, of the Trinity um, to imply that he didn't always exist as the second person of the Trinity and the Son of God, God himself. So Romans 3, I'll put this up there in case some of those are there for us. They're not, that's okay. Uh, Romans 3, 1 through 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. So, there was no time where Jesus, where, where the second person of the Trinity was not. He was always the Son of God. When, he's, when he comes in the incarnate, in, incarnated flesh, um, Yahweh from heaven speaks, this is my son, listen to him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it's declared emphatically in the resurrection. Um, the, the other verses up there were from Hebrews 1.5 um, and Hebrews 5.5 5 that also speak to, um, uh, pointing back to this, to you are my son and today I have begotten you. Those are some verses you can write down and look up later. Um, There is, um, we're not going to be looking at these, these texts today, but um, verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of earth for your possession. There is, um, the, the New Testament speaks to the subjugation of the enemies of God and the enemies of Jesus. Um, uh, this, uh, this asking, though, to receive the inheritance is also... Um, the same kind of expression used in Joshua 1. I found that interesting when I was teaching on Joshua 1, where um, Yahweh told Joshua, I've given you this land. It, it was mine. I've already given it to you. But what do you have to do? He had to go in and get it. So it's, it's appropriate for the son to ask um, for the inheritance from his, from his father, from the, the God of heaven and earth who possesses um, all of this. Um, as we wrap up verses... 9, 10, and 11. Um, are there any questions? I've been going through really fast, and I only have just a couple minutes to wrap up. All right, well, let's at least 
um, uh, push through. So verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, Revelation 2 um, speaks to this. He will, um, he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. He will break them in pieces like jars of clay. Um, and now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And also uh, Revelation 12.5 is an allusion to Psalm 2.9. And it says that, that the son will shepherd all nations with an iron rod and her child was snatched away to God and to his throne. But we see here the, the parallelism of break and shatter of, of this, this potter's vessels. There is um, some of the, the other witnesses of, of the Old Testament, some of the other ancient ones, use the, the term you will shepherd versus um, you will break them to pieces with a rod of iron, but you will shepherd them with a rod of iron. We saw in this New Testament um, quotations of it that they, they tended to follow the Septuagint with the shepherding of the nations with a rod of iron, but also the context still fits that um, those who don't submit will certainly be dashed to pieces uh, and broken with the rod of iron. And uh, we won't look at it this morning, but Jeremiah 19 speaks to that too, of the dashing of potters, uh, of the pottery uh, as imagery of those who are disobedient to Yahweh. And then verse 10, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are now focused back again on the kings. And it's, it's, a, it's a warning to them that you can submit or be destroyed. Um, I liked how the Cambridge commentary said uh, in, in this warning that submission may avert destruction. So they're called upon to submit. And verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And, and, and verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then, so, so the warning to them is, look, you have an opportunity to submit and, and, and follow the, the true king of the universe or you can be dashed to pieces. You can, uh, the Lord is patient to, to anger, but when he strikes, it's in full justice and it's powerful. Um, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. But he, the psalmist closes with a reminder that for us that do submit, blessed are all those who put their, their trust in him. And I talked about kind of a Hebraic inclusio. It, this term, kiss the sun, um, the word sun there is the Aramaic word bar instead of bane. Um, so that's where, you know, it's a, it's, Look, you kings of the earth, submit in, in true humbleness before the true king or you'll be dashed. And we don't really have time to, um, to dig into it any further. I hope that you're, you're able to appreciate the, the, the nature of Hebrew poetry with its rich symbolism, with its parallelism. I hope that when you read it on your own that you can try and see, is this a specificity? Is it an, an, an increase? Um, I don't always know that I get it right, so enjoy it. Just have fun with it while you're looking at it. Look at the messianic implications um, along with the historic setting. 
and then and then look for where the New Testament is using uh, and drawing on and interpreting these psalms for us. And with that, we'll close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. We pray that it would be a rich blessing to us. We pray that it, we would use it um, uh, daily to um, guide and direct us and that we would submit to its authority. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.